We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. I'd like to begin our discussion a little bit differently. Most people here are generally familiar with the situation in Flint, Michigan, and what you've done. Can we assume that the situation in Flint couldn't be replicated in a place like St. Louis? And what should we be doing to make sure that it doesn't happen here? So the situation in Flint was compounded by many factors that we are seeing right now in our nation. It was about a breakdown in democracy. We see that right now all over this country with things like gerrymandering and voter disenfranchisement. It was about disintegration of critical infrastructure. Uh, we think our roads and our bridges are bad. What's, what's underneath is even worse. It's about environmental injustice, which, which is also everywhere. Too often, uh, poor people and people of color are disproportionately impacted by pollution. But this can happen again because it's also about a breakdown in how we care for each other, especially our most vulnerable, especially our children. Especially, look at the events that have happened in this last week or so. It has caused us, it's caused me to, to look at our nation and look at ourselves and ask, how do we care for children, no matter where they come from or, or what they look like or their citizenship? How do we care um, for, for our most vulnerable kids? It's definitely not by our actions and our priorities. If you look at our childhood poverty rate, if you look at what happened with Flint and our water quality, if you look at what's happening in our schools where children are literally being slaughtered because of our inaction on gun violence, if you look at how we use children's health care as a bargaining chip. So what happened in Flint can happen and continues to happen because of all these deeper crises that we are facing all over in this nation right now. What should our city officials and county officials, whomever, be doing to ensure that we're not in the middle of it right now? So if you specifically just think about the water quality, what we can be doing and what, what this book is all about is about opening our eyes. So the book is titled What the Eyes Don't See, and it's about people and places and problems we just choose not to see. Just let's put blindfolds on and let's not think about the problems that are right in front of us all over. And the way to fix that is is to be educated, to be informed, to be aware, and to all fundamentally have empathy for others who are in less privileged situations than, than we are in. So that is how city officials and county officials and government officials can be kind of on the lookout, but it takes the role of all of us to hold them accountable. So what happened in Flint happened because one of the reasons is because we lost democracy. Flint was under emergency management. Our elected officials had no role. There was no accountability. Democracy is, is messy and it's loud, but it, it needs to happen. And it can only happen when all of us are at the table and all of us are informed and educated and vote and you know ask tough questions. But as you point out in the book, elected officials, political officials are, are not always responsive to uh, the obvious. And that was your biggest fight, was convincing them what the problem was. 
Yeah, so there's two sides of the story. So there is the silence and the deafness that I got when I tried to raise the alarm bells from from bureaucrats, from the elected officials that were in charge. Uh, Flint was under the control of the state of Michigan, under state-appointed emergency management, and they weren't listening. They weren't listening to me. They weren't listening to the people of Flint. They weren't listening to journalists. They weren't listening to water scientists. They just did not care about what was happening in Flint. But Flint is also a story where some of our other elected officials truly stepped up. For example, our state senator, our U.S. Congress people, our U.S. senators, they fought and they continue to fight every day for the city. And it reminded me what it means to be a public servant. And I have sat in many of their, their offices and they listened and they cared. So it, it, it continues to... Um, you know, demand the role of us being engaged and informing them. But many of them did not. Many of them did not. So the state officials did not listen to the warnings. And there were so many warnings in the story. I have a whole chapter called Red Flags. And I I like to share kind of my biggest red flag in the story. So in April of 2014, we switched water sources. The water source, the Flint River, wasn't treated properly. It was corrosive. It was 19 times more corrosive than the water we had been getting from the Great Lakes. And the biggest red flag came just a few months after that water switch. So what do you guys, what do you guys know that Flint's famous for before this water crisis? Automobiles. Cars, automobiles. So Flint is the birthplace of cars, birthplace of General Motors. Uh, at one point, GM employed 80,000 people in Flint, and now it's down to about 5,000, which is part of the story. But General Motors still has plants in Flint. And a few months into this water change, General Motors stopped using this water because it was corroding their engine parts. <laughs> and they got a free pass to go back to Great Lakes water while the people of Flint were told to relax that everything was okay. That is one of many red flags in the story that was ignored. There was also a, a top official with General Motors at one point that you cite in the book as having been somewhat villainous. Kettering? Oh, yes, this is a great story. This book is, I think, fascinating because it takes a lot of digressions, and a lot of those digressions are into history. So we need to know about the history of problems, or or we, we can't figure out how we got there. And we also run the risk of repeating problems, which we're really good at in, in this nation and, and all over the world. Mm-hmm. So I talk a lot about lead history, and the history of lead is evil. The lead industry was absolutely evil. They knew about the evils of lead, yet they continued to put it in many products. And the greatest villain, I believe, is a, a GM engineer, a renowned GM engineer named Charles Kettering. So you guys, I'm sure, have heard of him, Kettering Sloan uh, Cancer Center. There's a city in Ohio named after Kettering. The engineering school in Flint is Kettering University, renowned engineering school. And he put lead in gasoline, tetraethyl lead. He put lead in gasoline in the 1920s, even when it was known to be poisonous and actually to have poisoned and killed people in in plants. And there was a a fight at that time in the 1920s to stop using it. And the Surgeon General at that time got involved. And there was an amazing woman physician named Alice Hamilton who who fought him with with all she had. She was Harvard's first female professor. She was the nation's expert on lead at that time. And she, she actually at one point in a conference actually called him a murderer. I'm like, I can't believe you're doing this. And the corporate greed won, 
and lead was put into gasoline, even though there was alternatives, even though we knew of its toxicity. And that has poisoned more people in this world than any other source of lead. And that has GM roots, and that also has Flint roots. I don't want to digress too far, but while we're talking about history, when I came to St. Louis in 1971, the big story of the day was lead paint problems. It's still a problem here today. Absolutely. It really has to be pointed out, as you did with the gasoline situation, that it's not only about water. No, there's lead in many sources. Legacy lead, we used it in paint. We were often forced to use it in paint. Public housing was mandated to use lead paint. We used it in plumbing. We used it in gas. It's also in uh, makeup and ceramics and toys. And there's, it, Lead was a wonderful metal. It's a wondrous metal. It's malleable. It's strong. It's durable. And it's been used throughout history. The Romans used lead for their aqueducts. They even put it in their food. And many people hypothesize the demise of the Romans is because they used so much lead. You know, for centuries, we've heard reports about what lead does to people. And most recently, current science has taught us that there is no safe level of lead. The levels that we thought were okay decades ago in our grandparents' time are no longer okay. And we now that know that the, even the very lowest level causes steepest decline in children's cognition and behavior. One of the heroes, a pediatrician named Phil Landergan in New York, who was really credited with getting lead out of paint, he's been known as the guy who raised the IQ of the nation because he got lead out of paint. And, you know, lead levels, because of these great policies to limit their use in paint and gasoline, the children have had less exposure. It's great. It's beautiful. There's a beautiful curve over the last few decades where children's lead levels have been going down. But at the same time, we've learned a lot more about what it can do to children. And we also know that it disproportionately impacts vulnerable populations. That's where I wanted to go with this. You are a pediatrician, and this was a, a trigger mechanism for you, the fact that children are involved. Let, let's look a little more closely at exactly what it does do to children. You mentioned IQ, so mm -hmm. it, there are other elements as well. Absolutely. So yeah. lead is a potent, irreversible neurotoxin. It impacts the most developmentally vulnerable, so especially the, the unborn and really children up to the age of five when your brains are really developing. And in that population, when you are impacted with lead, it impacts cognition, so literally how children think. It impacts behavior, leads to things like developmental disabilities, attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity. See, even been linked to impulsivity and criminality. Uh, there's been some great lead economists that have looked at kind of violent crime trends over the last few decades and have correlated them with a 29-year lag in the reduction of, of lead exposure. We also now know about the genetic impacts of lead. It has known to have an epigenetic impact where your environment impacts your DNA. We also know that it, it has an economic disadvantage. So children who have been impacted by lead have decreased economic earnings and have you know, more problems getting a job and finishing school. So all of this great science is based on epidemiology. When you look at populations, you can't predict what's going to happen to an individual child, but you can predict what will happen to populations. Is this something that can be corrected if the exposure is limited or stopped? Not really. So it is an irreversible neurotoxin. However, you can mitigate the impact. You can limit the impact. You can buffer the impact. 
And that is absolutely what this story and this book is about. It is about taking a crisis and turning around. And, and we are doing that in Flint. We are doing things in Flint that aren't being done anywhere else because of this crisis. We've also been able to frame this crisis in a way as an added toxic stress. So this is burgeoning concept in pediatrics and public health called toxic stress or the concept of adverse childhood experiences. That when you are in early childhood, when you have adversity, be it poverty, exposure to violence, lack of nutrition, you know, separation from parents, uh, exposure to a neurotoxin, that is a toxic stress. And when you have so many of these toxic stresses, it impacts you in a graded and predictable fashion. If you actually have six of these early adversities, it drops your life expectancy by 20 years. But you can tip the scale with resilience building interventions. And that is absolutely what we're doing in Flint. We are throwing everything at these kids that science tells us will promote their development. What about the adults? So um, I get this all the time. So I speak often in Flint and at churches and community groups and like, you only care about kids. I'm like, I'm sorry. It impacts adults too. So lead impacts every organ system, every age range. So in adults, it's been associated with early dementia, with hypertension, with kidney disease, with gout, anemia, cardiovascular disease. There was a great article that just came out in the Lancet a few months ago that um, really um, implicates a lot of cardiovascular mortality because of pre-existing lead exposure. It impacts everybody. And then what we were talking about earlier, it also impacts animals. So pets are often the, the kind of the cardinals of environmental health exposures. Animals are often lower to the ground. They were drinking water from non-potable water sources, so like a laundry tub basin, and the fixtures there have higher lead contents. So our animals in Flint were actually the first ones exposed. Uh, Michigan State University has an amazing vet school. They came in, did blood testing, and also found elevated lead levels in our animals. Well, let's stop here for one moment. Now that you've scared the hell out of her. I'm so sorry. (laughs) We'll continue talking about some of these things. But what should we all be doing? I mean, I read your book and it did scare me. It did scare me to think that I could be exposed to it and not know it. And the kids and the pets. Yeah, so that also gets at the title, What Your Eyes Don't See. So very literally, you do not see lead in water. You also do not see the effects of lead. In pediatrics, that's known as a silent pediatric epidemic. I wish patients would present to me with like flashing rashes. I'm like, oh, that's lead. But they don't. We don't see the impact of lead for for years, if not decades, when they have problems at school. And by that time, the exposure is often too late. And it's also multifactorial, which means it could be caused by lots of other stuff, too. So... Don't be scared. You know, we have made great advances in public health. We have limited the exposure of children to lead. It's been fantastic because of great policies. But we have a long way to go. We need to continue to advocate for lead elimination. And this is one of the the beautiful side effects of this water crisis is that the nation started to pay attention to lead again. We thought it was a problem of yesterday. It's not. It's a problem of today. And it's a problem of tomorrow because of its lasting effect. So I've been part of so many national efforts to look at how do we eliminate lead exposure and how do we really address the disparities because lead is a form of environmental racism, environmental injustice 
our kids in Flint already had high lead levels, just like kids in Detroit and Chicago and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and St. Louis. So some of our country's most vulnerable children who already have so many of these toxic stresses from poverty to violence to you know missing parents are already burdened with this. So it has been phenomenal to, to address this and to get dollars to fund these efforts. And you're getting them? So Flint it has gotten some resources, but so have so has the national organizations. So the Centers for Disease Control, which has a childhood lead poisoning prevention program, was stripped of their funding in about 2012. So Congress cut their funding because we've done such a great job with lead. Not really. It went back to about half of that what they used to have. But because of Flint, the Flint bill that passed Congress in December 2016 gave the CDC more dollars for national-led elimination efforts, which is phenomenal. It is not enough. It is nowhere near enough. We need a lot more money to, to truly reinvestigate homes, abate the homes, and to eliminate exposure. It doesn't seem in the current climate like the Environmental Protection Agency would be very... Willing to listen to you for any length of time. So Scott Pruitt actually said that he has declared a war on lead. He did this from his, uh, his telephone booth? The secret telephone booth, maybe. <laughs> so what's happening at the EPA is very concerning. There is a permanent dismantling of, of that infrastructure, that agency, uh, threats to regulations that protect you know, our air quality, our water quality. We are in an era of science denial. So Flint is absolutely an example where, where normal common sense science was denied. And we, we only see more of that with the denial of climate change and the denial of the science of these regulations. The EPA has this incredible opportunity to, to tighten regulations, to not see any more flints. But they're passing on that. I'd like to go back to scaring people, if I may. You mentioned rashes a, a minute or two ago. And you do have an element in your book, and I think you're alluding to that, about how part of the problem was discovered when kids were taking baths. Yeah, so some of the first presenting signs of that there was something wrong with this water was that children were having rashes. They would take a bath, and there would be a rash like up to that water line. People were losing their hair. So it... It's probably not from lead. Lead doesn't do that. But there was lots of other problems with this water. We had a lot of bacteria in this water. And there were boil advisories because of that bacteria. And boiling water is actually the worst thing you're supposed to do with lead because it concentrates lead in whatever you're cooking. Then they put a lot of chlorine in this water, and that caused skin and eye irritation. People actually said they felt like they were drinking a swimming pool. And then there was so much chlorine in the water, it created a buildup of something called uh, disinfectant byproducts. And you can't even say this word. It's total trihalomethanes, TTHMs, which is a carcinogen if inhaled. We had nine months of safe drinking water violations because we had a buildup of this, this carcinogen because of so much chlorine added. There were lots of problems with this water, but continuously the state was reassuring the people of Flint that it was okay. Part of the problem, of course, is the corrosion of the pipes bringing the water in. Tell these folks what $80 a day might have done. <laughs> so all of this was done in a cost-cutting move, right? So Flint was under state-appointed financial emergency management. It was near bankrupt. The, the mission was austerity. How do you save money, cut government, save, save money, no regard for public health, or children's health. So that's how we switched to the Flint River because of this, this cost-cutting move. 
And the switch to the Flint River would have maybe been okay if the water was treated properly with, with corrosion control. It's a necessary ingredient that's in water treatment to prevent whatever's in the pipes from corroding. And that was not added. And we found out later the cost of this corrosion control would only have been $80 to $100 a day. That's all it would have cost, but that wasn't done. And, and the pump to install the, this treatment was never installed. So there was no intent to, to add this, this, this treatment at all. What has happened to the, uh, to the politicians who were dismissing you? Have they had to pay the piper in any sense of the word? Absolutely. So there have been, there are ongoing, uh, Flint is not a, this is not a history. This is an ongoing story. To this day, there's, there's multiple uh, lawsuits. There's about 18 criminal charges that have been filed against the head of our state health department, the water people, the people at our Department of Environmental Quality, the, the, the people who were supposed to treat this water properly, the emergency managers, the people in our surveillance program at our state who are supposed to do, do the surveillance for children's lead levels, they've been charged because of cover-up issues. There's also been homicide charges, negligent homicide charges. We talked a lot about lead, but this crisis also gave us one of the largest outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease, which is a pneumonia that's often fatal in adults. Because this water wasn't treated properly, it created this really perfect milieu for the overgrowth of that pathogen, and, and thus we had deaths. I'll back up a little bit here because... <laughs> I think another interesting part of your story is the way you got into this whole thing. It was almost an accident, wasn't it? It was an accident. It was absolute serendipity. So people assume that I was taking care of patients who presented with symptoms of lead poisoning. But you guys all know now there are no symptoms of lead poisoning. Or maybe I was in clinic and I saw lots of kids with elevated lead levels. But that's one provider could see elevated lead levels. But you need to have that population level data to see big trends. That's what public health and that's what surveillance is all about. So I found out about lead in the water at my home with a high school girlfriend who just by chance, happens to be a drinking water expert. She used to work for the EPA. She worked for the EPA in Washington, D.C. when Washington, D.C. had a very similar lead and water crisis. Who knows that Washington, D.C. had a lead and water crisis? Nobody knows. But read the book. You're going to be fascinated. Right. So Washington, D.C., about a decade ago, had a lead and water crisis, and it lasted longer than Flint, and the levels were worse than Flint, and nobody was held accountable. And this was right under our nation's government. And that was not even the first lead and water crisis. There's been many, many throughout history. So my girlfriend happened to know about corrosion control. She had seen a leaked memo from a former colleague of hers at the EPA. And we were at my house, at my kitchen. Our kids were running around, a glass of wine in my hand. So all good stories start with wine. Remember, no salad. And she, um, she's like, you know, there's something wrong with the water. I'm like, it's okay. I'm seeing patients in my clinic. My patients are worried. They want to use this water for formula feeding. I keep telling them it's okay. I just saw kids this morning. Uh, the mom was worried, and I said it was okay because the state said it was okay. She's like, you know, well, you know, they're not treating it properly. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, they're not using corrosion control in her. She, you could tell she was freaked out. I'm like, I don't know what that is. Like, what's corrosion control? She's like, without that, there's going to be lead in your water. And to be honest, before that moment, I did not even know that there was lead in any of our plumbing until that moment. Everybody should have an expert in drinking water. Best friend, friend. yeah. <laughs>
What were you thinking about as, as you were peeling this onion and learning more and more about it, which was obviously a prolonged process? What were you thinking about with regard to your own kids? Yeah, so I don't, I don't live in Flint, so I live outside of Flint. But what my children say is like, Mom, it's like we have 6,000 siblings, you know, since this has happened. Um, so my kids in Flint that I take care of, they're my kids. They are no different than my children. But I also, once again, realize the incredible privilege that I have to not live in the city, to not have to drink that water day in and day out. I drank it at work all the time. I, I streamlined mainline coffee all day. I mean, that was made with it. But, but you know, I'm older and I don't have to wake up every day like the people of Flint to this day who are waking up on filtered and bottled water, not knowing where they're going to get it. Think about that. You wake up, you brush your teeth, you take a shower, you make coffee, you have breakfast, you know, you bathe your children. And that is to this day happening in the city of Flint in a city that is one of the poorest cities in the country. By the way, one of the poorest cities, you point out in the book that Navy SEALs train in Flint because it so approximates a third world country. How do you like that? So I mentioned earlier today, before the water crisis, I had children with elevated lead levels that I was caring for because of retained bullets, because of the violence in, in our neighborhoods. So Flint has been in crisis for years, if not decades, because of disinvestment and unemployment and poverty and racism and so many societal problems. What were you going through as authorities were more and more dismissive of you? You were learning more and more, and they were brushing you up. What were they calling you? I've forgotten the term in the book. Just like a just, She's just a pediatrician or yeah, something like that. Yeah, local pediatrician, unfortunate researcher, that I was causing near hysteria, which is one of my favorites because it's also sexist, that I was splicing and dicing numbers, and that the state's numbers were not consistent with my numbers. So the state had these numbers because, like I said, blood lead data is part of surveillance programs. The state had the data, and they were saying flat out that I was wrong. I want to get to your personal story, too, to a degree, because that's a big part of your book. You move back and forth from your family, your upbringing, and, and the kinds of influences on your life. And that was really very important. It made you kind of a stubborn lady, didn't it, uh, the way you were brought that's up? That's what and... my husband says, yes. <laughs> well, tell us about that, the influences that put you in the position to be so tenacious. Absolutely. So this book is is very much about a fast-paced kind of page-turner about the Flint water crisis. But but embedded in that is, is about me. And I couldn't really tell a first-person book without telling you who I am and how I came to be in Flint and came to do what I do and, and why I did that. So I'm a first-generation immigrant. So we came to this country when I was about four. We came to this country fleeing tyranny. You guys remember Saddam Hussein in Iraq? So my parents were dissidents. They were part of the opposition movement. And they uh, were seeing the rising fascist regime of Saddam Hussein. So we immigrated to this, state, this country for, for freedom and for democracy and for opportunity. And Lady Liberty opened her arms to me and my family, which I cannot say is happening today. And I grew up confident and competent, and I had homeless in my lunch, and nobody at that time knew what homeless was, but it was okay. <laughs> and I was raised very much knowing how lucky I was to be in this country and how fortunate I was to be here. And every day... I realized that I had cousins back in Iraq who were not as lucky. 
And I'd come home from school and, and talk about something that was, I mean, was happening at school. And my mom, mom would be like, oh, there's air raids or your uncle just got conscripted to the Iran-Iraq war or this was happening. I learned at a very young age what evil people in power can do to vulnerable populations. There's a part in my book where I talk about the first time I saw a dead baby. And the first time I saw a dead baby was when I was about 11 or 12. And my father showed me a picture of the genocide in Halabja, which is in northern Iraq, when Saddam Hussein poisoned an entire village, a Kurdish village, and 5,000 people died. And that was the first time I saw a dead baby. And that never, never left my mind. And that has shaped who I am and, and what I do and, and, and why I do what I do. Medicine and science, always part of the process for you? Is that Absolutely. You know where you were going? Sort of. So I, I very much grew up with the periodic table. So my, my, my dad's a metallurgical engineer, so metals everywhere. My mom was a chemist. She was a chemist trained in Baghdad, um, but became a teacher when we came to the States. So science was always part of my family. But my parents taught us to take deep dives into current events, into history, into policy, into literature. They taught us to be as well-rounded as possible and to know as much about where we are and where we come from. I can't uh, let you uh, get away without asking you more about what's going on today. As someone who has lived through this experience of coming into this country, peel that onion a little bit more deeply for me, if you wouldn't. So I'll first peel it as a pediatrician. So as a pediatrician, what is happening to the children on the border is an absolute trauma. It is government-sanctioned child abuse. What that will do to children will have lifelong developmental and behavioral consequences. It is, as I mentioned before, it is a toxic stress. It is a trauma. These children will need lifelong mental health therapy, which I do not think they will receive. So as a pediatrician, it is, it is wrong, and, it is, and I'm so proud of my fellow pediatricians who have been at the forefront and, and been very vocal, saying how this is, this is not how you treat children. As an immigrant, right when um, Trump's travel ban, his first travel ban, went into effect in 2017, I, I, in 24 hours, I quickly penned a New York Times op-ed called Corroding the American Dream. And at that time, Iraq was on that first travel ban. And I talked about how I wouldn't be in this country. I literally would not be in this country with that travel ban. And now with the Supreme Court decision yesterday, um, you just have to wonder what we are missing out on in this nation in the future. Your parents both are still alive? Absolutely. What They're taking they care of my kids right now. <laughs> what are they thinking? That's another generation. Yeah. So um, what are they thinking about? Me yes. or this book or this crisis. Oh, oh. So they are they are proud. They are worried. So my mom is this prototypical, always worried immigrant mom who was super strict, tiger mom. So like, I mean, I had no sleepovers, no dating, no makeup. Like she'll just just probably thinks my skirt is too short. So like, you know. Very, very worried because she grew up where she lost everything from her childhood. She couldn't see or talk to her parents for 20 years because of that, that dictatorship and that separation. I think when this all exploded, and especially when I was being attacked, they were worried for my safety. They were worried that I would not come home one day, you know, that something would happen. We want to solicit questions from the audience, and we'll do that now. Well, I'll ask another question as that's being set up. You indicated earlier that people are fighting very, very hard in Flint. Is, is the worst over? What needs yet to be done? 
Yeah, so I want to touch on the on the people fighting. The the people of Flint are the heroes of the story, and they have been vocal and they have been brave and they have been organized and they they continue to fight. So Flint, like I said, is still unfiltered and bottled water. The state recently cut the bottled water supply. Cut the supply. Cut the bottled water supply to Flint. In the same week, they also granted Nestle unlimited access to Great Lakes water for a two hundred dollar per year fee. The same week. Yet people of Flint to this day have water shutoffs because they can't afford the water and they have issues with safety and accessibility. The water supply has absolutely gotten better, but we are undergoing massive infrastructure work. We are replacing our lead pipes that were damaged. And when you do infrastructure work, earth-moving work, it disrupts the lead scale that's underneath, and that's why people need to remain unfiltered and bottled water. That will be done by 2020, which is amazing. It's never been done in that short of a period. There's only two other cities in this nation that have replaced their lead pipes, and Flint will be the third. That's what I was concerned when we started this discussion. Because we're an old city, and I imagine we have some of that stuff uh, underground as well. Absolutely. So it's absolutely underground, especially in the Northeast and the Midwest. We didn't restrict lead to our service lines, like I said, until 1986, but not until our brass fixtures until 2014. There's lead in all of our plumbing, and it's it's awesome to see cities and schools now testing and, and, and filtering because the federal laws don't protect people the most. Michigan actually just last week passed a a regulation that exceeds federal standards. It's a model lead and copper rule um, that calls for pipe replacement in the whole state over the next 20 years and decreases the action levels. I'll go back to the scary stuff for one more minute as we await uh, the questions from the audience. You point out in the book that, uh, that the hardware we all have in our kitchen, the faucets and what have you, not until was it 2014? 2014. Yeah, you, you explain what that's all about. Yeah, so brass fixtures could still have lead in them until 2014. So an example I like to share is Flint schools had some of the highest water lead levels, like in the hundreds and thousands of parts per billion. But big buildings didn't have lead service lines, but they, they had the fixtures were, were corroding and leaching lead. And so we see that often in schools because schools have long periods of non-use of water, like over the weekends and overnight. Um, so they can have a, a more buildup of, of lead in the water. So if I have plumbing in my kitchen that is uh, 10 years old, what should I be doing? You can do very simple things. You can flush your water before you use it. So run the cold water on your tap uh, until it gets really, really cold, and then you know you have the water from the main that re- flushes a lot of that sediment. Um, and then another simple thing you can do is never use hot water for cooking and drinking. That's because heat uh, increases the leaching of lead from your plumbing, which is why children have some elevated lead levels in the summertime as well. So just flush your water until it's super cold. Never use hot water for cooking or drinking. If you have a vulnerable child, a pregnant mom, a baby who's using this water for formula, you can attach a filter to the end of your kitchen faucet, a, a lead clearing filter. That was another part of your story, too, the the formula. People were making formula with water, of course. Absolutely. So Flint, like many inner cities, has low breastfeeding rates. Most of our babies are on formula. You make formula by mixing powder with tap water. And babies like warm bottles, so you often mix it with warm tap water. And that's the most vulnerable population. And we don't even screen for lead at at that young age. 
Okay, let's take some questions from our friends in the audience. Come on up if you would and, and stand before that microphone. And if you'd be good enough to just tell us your name. Marlene Bricker. And I first want to tell you, I have watched you every time on Rachel. And I know how much you love her for bringing the story. I know, and she loves you. I hate to sound, I don't even know how to describe it. But to me, I know what a big problem the water is. But it almost seems to me like it's a blip on the last month what's going on here, the kids locked up, the Supreme Court, things, et cetera, et cetera. And I know how you fought in Flint and fought against all odds. So could you give us some ideas on how to, where each of us could do something to make some changes? Absolutely. And that is, that is why I wrote this book. So this book is very much about the tragic lessons in Flint, but this book is also about the activism and the resistance and the hope. And that is what I want to share. This book is about how all of us, no matter who we are, moms, you know, school teachers, retired persons, physicians, no matter who you are or what you do or how long you've been in this country, this book is about the power that we all have to, to raise our voices, to open our eyes, and to fix things around us. So often we go around our daily lives and we just clock in and we clock out and there's things happening all around us and we just, we, we just shut our eyes. And the lesson in, in this book and this story is that we need to be engaged. If there was ever a time in our nation that we needed to step up and be awake and be civically engaged and be part of, an, of activism and resistance, it is now. And, and those are the lessons that I hope to share. And in very simple ways, it's about asking questions. It's about voting. It's about running for office. It's about getting your friends elected. It's about fundraising. It's very simple things that we can do in our communities to, to raise our voice and, and to, to share our values. Speaking of asking questions, we have another from the audience. If so, come on up, please. As, as she's making her way up, I'll just ask, you, you had quite an eclectic group working with you throughout yeah, all this. Yeah, so that's another big lesson of this book is the power of your village. And this this story, the uncovering of the story, the work that we are doing is all about team. And it is about folks that you may not think are are your comrades, but they are. So my best friends in the story was a water engineer. I'm like, a water engineer cares about kids as much as a pediatrician? Yeah, he does. He actually does. And so do the moms and the activists and the pastors and the journalists. So a big lesson is about teamwork and and kind of breaking down silos. So often we are limited to the folks maybe in our profession or in our groups. And you'd be surprised to find out how many folks think like you and care like you and believe in the same issues that you believe in. Okay, our next question. Okay. Hi, my name is Brittany Barley. So first I want to thank you for being here, definitely for being inspiring. I'm a SLU med student and aspiring pediatrician, social activism. Yeah, so definitely both of those things are up my alley. Um, So my question was with, you know, as much light as you've brought to this lead crisis, how do we pick up on things that may be lead related or other types of things that are silent before they become a crisis? That's a great question. So how do we pick up on these things that our eyes don't see? So it's by being astute and aware and alert. But specifically for lead, it's about picking it up in the environment before we pick it up in a child. So in in medicine and public health, we are literally using children as environmental detectors. 
And once we detect it in a child, it just tells us there's something wrong in the environment and we, we can't do much for that child. So we need to be more proactive. We need to focus on what we call in public health primary prevention, where we're never supposed to expose a population. So great things are happening in Michigan, Massachusetts, several other states. They proactively investigate and abate lead before a mom gets pregnant, before children get exposed. And that's the direction we need to be moving on for lead. So before homes are transferred and rental properties are transferred in some states, they actually test the water and the soil and the paint before a child moves in. That's what needs to happen. And there's this massive return on investment, economic return on investment for those kind of actions. Thank you. you bet. And another thing in, in medicine is um, getting out of your box. So, you know, I talk about some of the greatest things that I can prescribe for my kids are, are things like jobs and, and literacy and, you know, uh, housing stability and safe neighborhoods. And people are like, but you're a doctor. Like, why do you care about those things? Because those are the kinds of things that will impact your patients more than any medication that you can prescribe. I talk a lot about that in a book. It's, it's being cognizant of everything, all of the environmental determinants, all the toxic stresses that may seem out of your wheelhouse, but are in your wheelhouse when it impacts children. Do we have another question out there? Come on up, sir. Mark Seminoff, you mentioned that we put lead into gasoline. Is that a very big problem and as big as the problem in Flint, Michigan? Sure. So we put lead in gasoline in the 1920s. It finally came out in the 1980s. So it's no now you, you see everywhere at the gas stations unleaded, which is like a total joke because it never had lead to start with. Like we added that to lead. So it was always unleaded. But we, we had it in gasoline for a long time, and we continue to suffer the consequences. So soil is contaminated with lead because of lead that was in gasoline often. It is actually still allowed in jet fuel. There still is lead in gasoline. And there's three countries that still use lead in gasoline, and one of them, most ironically, is Iraq. So it contaminated the whole world with lead. If you want to learn more, Google or read about Claire Patterson, and he's one of my favorite scientists. He was a geophysicist. He was on a quest to determine the age of the earth. He was at the University of Chicago, and he couldn't figure out the age of the earth because he had to use something called like lead carbon dating or something, and he couldn't figure it out because the entire earth was contaminated with lead. He found out that compared to our ancient ancestors, like pre-industrial time, that we were, had like 100 more times lead in our body. Pre-industry, there was no lead in our bodies. But because of lead and gasoline, we had essentially contaminated. Even, even He even took cores of ice and still found lead in ice because of lead and gasoline. Another question. Hi, Missy Rung Blue. First of all, thank you for being here and thank you for standing up for science. And as somebody who in the community works with a group where that's what we try to do is promote and stand up for science, what advice do you have for all of us who believe in science, not that science is really a belief, but believe yeah. in science and make sure that it's used in making decisions? Awesome. Great question. So I was part of the first March for Science. So I was one of the Honorary co-chairs with Bill Nye. That was like the most exciting part about it. <laughs> and the, that whole movement was for scientists and physicians and academics to get out of their ivory towers. So we are so comfortable in our clinics and our classrooms and our exam rooms. And 
and we we think science is about kind of publishing and kind of racking promotion and tenure, and we fail to articulate the benefits of our science. So that movement was all about how do you get folks to recognize what science is all about. Science is about improving the human condition, you know, making things better for especially our most vulnerable populations. I did something that was a science no-no. So I walked out of my clinic and I shared my research at a press conference. That is not what doctors do. So I received an award from MIT called the Disobedience Award because of that. Like, that was hard to explain to my kids. I got a Disobedience Award. But it was an academic no-no. You don't do that without going through that peer review process. But that takes a long time. And our kids did not have another day. So in science, we don't do a good job working hand-in-hand with our communities. We don't do a good job being reactive and working um, on urgent issues because that's not the grant I have and that's not the project I'm doing. That's not what I'm funding to do. But we also don't do a good job communicating the benefit of, of our work. And now we are in an era of science denial where the common sense science of climate change is being denied. Vaccines, the efficacy of vaccines are being denied. We see it with you know the threats to all these regulations. So we as scientists, as academics, as physicians need to do a better job communicating why our, our science is important and being out in the community so that we can, we can see the benefits and, and employ the benefits of our science. We do have a problem in this country with the STEM disciplines. A lot of young people are turning away from science, technology, engineering, and math, and we need more of them. We need more of them, and we need diversity in them. We need folks um, who look like the patients and look like the communities that they are serving in uh, so that they recognize and, and, and empathize and, and can address these issues. Another question. And we need more women in science. <laughs> Hi, I'm Denise Sally. Uh, I just recently graduated from college, and I'm interested in public policy. And one of the questions that I often struggle with, and I'm interested in your opinion on, is how do we keep ourselves aware of cases of institutionalized racism? And how can we, especially like currently, I feel like there's a lot of times where I feel like I have no power. How can we use our, the power of our communities to make sure that we're standing up against this institutionalized racism that shows up in cases like Flint. Absolutely. So Flint is a, a clear case of institutional racism, of environmental injustice. There's been many reports that clearly document that the demographics of the population not only uh, began the, forced the creation of this crisis, but had it go on for as long as it did. Jesse Jackson called it a crime scene. Michael Moore, who's from Flint, said it was a racial crisis that never would have happened in a richer or wider community. The cause of the crisis, the emergency management, at one point, half of Michigan's African-American population was under emergency management compared to 2% of whites, grossly undemocratic. I take a deep dive in my book about the history of Flint and the institutional racism that really created this crisis. We have a long and dark history of blockbusting and redlining and lack of regionalization that left the city core starved and really set up, set up this crisis by the loss of that tax base and, 
and difficulty of people getting out. So how can you how can you stay informed and aware and create differences? Continue to read. So I just went on a huge criminal justice reading kick. I just read the new Jim Crow, Just Mercy, Tanasi Coates books. So keep reading. Like I thought I was well informed about racism in this country, and I learned so much. So keep opening your eyes. Keep reading. Keep asking questions, and vote, vote, vote. Vote and get everybody, all your neighbors, all your friends to vote because your power is at the ballot box. Next question, sir. If I may ask a question, okay, it's a broad perspective. Uranium ends up in lead and use lead to protect against radiation. So it's a friend there externally, but internally it is biochemically, metabolically, it's a totally different that's only perspective I want to bring it to, into your kind attention. Yeah, absolutely. So it's so, not only foe, it's also friend in the right place and right time. Right. If, if nobody's exposed to it and, and there's protection, it has benefit. And it, it has amazing benefits. I mean, it was people loved using it because of its malleability and its durability. It prevented contamination. So it had amazing benefits. But when people are exposed to it, it has zero benefit. Because when we have X-ray taken, you know, they always block other areas. So there it's a friend. But otherwise, it's a foe. Yeah. Thank you. We'll take one more question. But I have a, qu- a quickie as we wait for the questioner. You said the Romans used lead in the aqueducts. Do we have any evidence of what impact that might have had on the Romans? Sure. So not only did they use it in, in their plumbing, in their aqueducts, they also used it as a salt. They used it in their food. And there have been historians, and there's been many papers written about hypothesizing that the demise of the Romans was because they used so much lead. It also impacts fertility. So that it has many, many, many complications. So the fall of the Roman Empire may be blamed on lead. You can't. There, there's, there's definitely, that is a, a leading hypothesis. Wow. Next question, sir. Uh, Jim Schleicher, and you said that the politicians had the data and they were lying to you and you were successful with calling them out on their lie. How do we know that we're not being lied to and how do we do what you did and make sure that we're not being lied to? And- keep asking questions, keep digging and digging and digging. One member of this team or, or a group of members of this team were investigative journalists. In reports on the water crisis, they actually highlighted that investigative journalists played a critical role in digging and digging and digging. However, sadly, there aren't that many investigative print journalists anymore in this nation. Another critical tool in finding out that there was a cover-up in lies was the use of FOIA. So FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act. Anybody can FOIA any public institution and get emails and records. Um, And that is actually how we found out that the state health department actually knew about a spike in blood levels but had covered it up. So anybody can FOIA public institutions. It may be state-dependent laws. What's ahead for Dr. Mona? I am still working. <laughs> so this is vacation time. You know, the reason I wrote this book was, was, like I said, to share the message, to prevent future flints, to inspire folks to be active in their communities, to resist and work harder um, to make the lives of children everywhere who are suffering from very similar toxicities. Our work in Flint is just beginning. And like I said, we are doing amazing things for the kids. And I have the privilege and the honor to, to really to direct this model public health program that we are building to not see the consequences of this exposure. So I hope to come back and and share what we are doing because these are lessons that other communities and other children can hopefully take advantage of. You're kind of a blank disturber. Keep it up. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Best compliment ever. Thank you.